Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast you'll be listening to today is entitled Interfaith Relationships and Faith Crisis During Marriage, originally produced and published by Sarah Mendenhall of the Sitting Down with Sarah podcast. We're excited to share this podcast episode with you, but before we do, we wanted to highlight a positive review recently left on Dr. Finlayson Fife's Apple podcast platform. C at Grace says, Dr. JFF, the leader in healthy intimacy. Dr. Finlayson Fife has a mastery at articulating how to improve marriage intimacy. She taught me that a good or bad intimate relationship can transform into something miraculous. Her instruction causes self-reflection and finding meaning beyond our own behavioral problems. We participated in a romance tour with Dr. JFF in Italy, and it was the most amazing, most rewarding, most healthy sexual growth coaching we have ever experienced. I highly recommend learning from JFF early on in any marriage to start strong, stay strong, and grow together in ways you cannot even imagine. Thank you, Siat Grace, for your positive review. Positive reviews can help people find the podcast and help them improve their relationships with themselves and others. We encourage you to leave a review on whatever podcast platform you choose to listen to this podcast from. Thank you for all of your positive feedback, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Sitting Down with Sarah. I am so honored to be sitting down with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. She is a relationship and sexuality coach, as well as a licensed clinical professional counselor, and she has her PhD in counseling psychology. So I am so grateful that you have decided to sit down with me today and welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You bet. Today, we are going to dive into all things interfaith relationships and marriages, um, otherwise known as mixed faith relationships. But before we do that, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about yourself and about your practice and what you've been up to today. Sure. Uh, so I, um, I grew up um, LDS. And so I wrote my dissertation on LDS women and sexual agency. And so the focus of my practice is about uh, helping women um, initially, but also very much working with couples around issues related to intimacy, both emotional and sexual. And so I do a lot of online coaching and teaching. um, And I also do workshops around the country and, and, uh, well, the world a little bit. So, that's yeah. amazing. I know um, uh, in Canada that your workshops, you were going to be in Calgary. And I know yeah. many people who are really looking forward to that. So, hopefully, after this whole coronavirus, we can get you up here yeah. and hear those I hope words. So, yes. <laughs> Whatever that may be. Yeah, I know. So, talking about interfaith relationships, um, Something that just comes to mind initially is I feel like there's two ways that they come about. I feel like um, the first one is you have two people who are dating and they are aware um, of each other's beliefs and values and they make a conscious decision to enter that relationship knowing that. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, I feel like um, you can have a relationship or a marriage where at some point, one of them goes through a faith transition, and now it becomes a situation where neither parties uh, 
signed up for that or um, envisioned that. And now they are left to deal with this new chapter. Yes. And I think the second scenario is much harder. Yeah. Because it can feel like it's happened to the marriage, you know, Um, and the person who didn't go through the faith transition can often feel resentment because they feel like, you know, the person who is struggling in their faith or shifting in their faith has mm, created a cancer in the marriage in a sense. And so it can be very tricky. Right. Mm -hmm. So which side should we dive into first? Well, uh, it's up to you. We can look at sort of the easier version of it initially, which is, you know, if someone is choosing or electing to partner with somebody who has a different faith set, then maybe that would help us think more about what's happening when it happens mid-marriage. Yeah, let's do that. So when I think um, of consciously making that decision, uh, I wonder what are critical questions that need to be asked before moving forward? Well, I think, you know, I don't work with a lot of couples in this position, but I have some good friends uh, where she's an atheist, she's LDS, um, another same thing, actually, um, in both cases. And I think in both cases, they were very deliberate and slow to make the decision because for the believing uh, church member, well, for both, I think there were, they knew there were going to be losses losses of what they had envisioned about what marriage would be. Uh, And yet the fact of their friendship and their desire to be together basically allowed in both of these cases for each person in the partnership to come to peace with what the marriage could be and what it wouldn't be, where there would be intimacy and where there would not. And they wanted each other in both cases enough to say, I can consciously choose that I won't be marrying somebody who's going to marry me in the temple, or I'm not, I'm going to be marrying someone who's going to want to have a religious life, even when I don't identify with a religious feeling. And to say, I still want to make room for who you are, knowing that there will be aspects of myself that I don't have intimacy with you around. Right. Do you think that um, you can go in with any type of expectations when you know that that this is going to be a hurdle? Or do you think that you take all expectations off the table and take that one step at a time? I don't, I don't know that anybody can ever take all expectations off the table. I think it's more the, the couples that are going to do the best are going to be very honest with themselves and the other around what they think they really can live with. I mean, let's be clear though. Marriage is always a risk. Loving anyone's a risk. Having a child is a risk. You can't control all the variables, but you can go in with your eyes open. And so I think um, in the case of both of these couples, I think there was a, an honest sort of negotiation around how would this look for us? In both cases, the non-believing husband goes to church every week with the believing wife. And that's not because she demands it. It's more like, how do we accommodate each other and befriend each other through these differences? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is such an important um, 
thing to touch on is not that she demands it or that he demands it, but it's, um, I know, I recognize that that is something that's important to you and we can have that conversation beforehand and sort of set up. um, These are non-negotiables. These are things that I need from you. And are you willing to give me that? Yes. And I, I think it's not even framed of, I need these from you, but the only reason is I never liked the language of need because it's kind of saying, I don't have a choice. You have to give it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of like, I'm weak, therefore you must. It's kind of coercive. I prefer that, you know, I really desire that you, even if you don't believe, will support, you know, some of these ideals and what I want to offer to the kids. So I would like, you know, and, and so it's more from a position of this really matters to me. Is that something you think you can give or not give? I love that. Um, in one of those cases, she was saying it really matters to me that you don't consume alcohol. And I think what it really came down to is, is that he was saying, I think that's too much of an ask for me, although I'll be responsible about it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think they finally settled somewhere where they could both be at peace with it. But I think that's the most important thing is, is how much is too much for me to give? And I think this is true in any marital relationship where it actually compromises something fundamental to me or it's more than I really believe I can stand by versus how much can I really give to create a, a home for both of us. Yeah. What I think we often do in our immaturity is we use the idea of our neediness or we use our anger or our entitlement to basically say, I want 80% of this marriage to reflect me. And I'm going to use the idea that I'm too fragile or something that you have to give it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's so true. Mm-hmm. And and you touched on the fact that anything is a risk. Yes. And, and it makes me wonder, you know, is it easier or more successful long-term to be in a relationship with somebody of the same faith? Or is any relationship a risk and and something that anybody would take? Well, I would say any relationship is a risk because you can't control all the variables and people grow and change. On the other hand, I do think, you know, the more commonalities you have, the less you have to negotiate. You know, I worked with one couple, she was Jewish, he was Christian. They just had, they didn't share the same traditions, the same meanings. You know, Christmas season was had its challenges because it felt like a betrayal of her family in a way to celebrate Christmas and Santa Claus, but it felt like a betrayal of his to not. And so also, so that, that it's easier if you both understand, oh, this is what we do at Christmas and this is what we do, you know, uh, for Easter and so on. Um, on the other hand, everybody is drawn to difference generally. And we, part of a good marriage is you sort out how do you deal with the fact that there's two different people in the marriage. So, and you can't control for changes or that some things stop mattering to someone and other things start to matter. And so while I would generally say, I think there is um, greater ease in having a similar background. I mean, even if you can say you both grew up watching Gilligan's Island, I mean, there's, some, there's a, there's an intimacy in that you both understand what that means, you know? Yes. <laughs> uh, and so there's, there's fewer bridges to cross, but it's still being with a real person if it's an intimate marriage and it's a real marriage. And, um, and so that will stretch you nonetheless. Yeah. And that's the tough thing about evolution within 
humans and within relationships is that you might start off with a common ground and then in 10 years you have so much change and growth and it's just a matter of whether you are allowing your partner to do that or whether you're growing apart. That's right. And that's, that's right. That's a tough thing for any marriage. Yes, absolutely. So then on the flip side, um, going through a faith transition, I think that, you know, within the world today, we are seeing a lot of uh, different opinions obviously being welcomed uh, in, in the world. And so therefore, faiths are being tested and people are feeling more comfortable evolving within their faith and changing faith. So I think a lot of people are either silently suffering with um, faith transitions within their relationships or now they're speaking out about it, but it's sort of where to go from here. Yeah, absolutely. And what would you say about that? Well, first I would validate what you're saying, which is, you know, I think this is not just specific to the LDS tradition, but in many faith traditions, because there is a freer flow of information. And so we're not as an authoritative society as we used to be, because you can go on the internet and get all kinds of information, including misinformation. Um, And there is just, there's just a lot, information's much more democratic these days. And so it allows, it's a challenge for organized religion across the board to keep participants, um, not just because of the flow of information, but also a change in how people think about faith and authority and belonging to a community. It's, it's really shifted. So there's all those factors. Um, I think when it comes down to marriage, that particularly the more the religion has defined the individual and defined the couple, um, and the more orthodox the faith, and what I mean by that, or the more conservative the faith. So the more that, you know, some faiths require much more in terms of orthodoxy and behavior than other faiths, right? If I don't mean to just, I, I don't, I'm going to overly stereotype religions that I don't fully understand. But, you know, if you're um, a Methodist, for example, you can probably be a good Methodist without a lot of conforming behaviors that would define your orthodoxy. But if you belong to the Latter-day Saint faith or even more conservative Orthodox Judaism or something, which is even more behavior dependent, well, it's harder to have disbelief or have incongruent behavior and still get to belong to that community in the same way, to have the same status within that community. And so shifts in belief can really feel like a threat to belonging not just for the person who's having the shift in belief, but to the person that they're partnered with, because now we're not a couple in the same way within this community. I don't have the same security of being able to, you know, participate in religious practices with you in the same way. So it can really um, challenge the whole identity of the marriage and of each individual within it. Right. Because of these deep traditional meanings and how much they're linked to community. Right. And I just think um, when our identity is so tied into our faith, um, that that makes it really hard to look beyond 
when we have a spouse who who is changing that yes like we we don't even know where to go from there we don't even know yes. who does that make me and who does that make you and those are really big questions um, absolutely and i think especially and you know i can't speak to all faith traditions i can just speak to my own yes. but in the lds community i think especially if um you know, there is sort of this idea of the husband being the spiritual leader and the spiritual anchor. So I think especially if it's the husband that is being challenged in his faith, there's a real sense of a betrayal that you have let go of what your fundamental job and role is in this partnership, because it's often marriages are more role-based than intimacy-based right. in in religions that um, have a lot of codes around orthodoxy and orthodox behavior. And so even though there's the desire for an intimate marriage, oftentimes the roles become more important and a substitute for an intimate marriage. Right. And nothing will challenge this like faith transition is what do I really want, a role-based marriage or an intimate marriage? Because if it's intimate, getting to know you may terrify me. and bring me into aspects of myself or questions about my my faith or things that I don't want to deal with or look at and knowing you challenges them or ideas about who we are going to be that I don't want to have up for negotiation and knowing you will push them up for negotiation. So what I see is when there's a faith transition issue in one of the partners and not the other is this deep question around how intimate can this marriage really tolerate becoming? Wow, that's powerful. Mm-hmm. So what would you say then, um, just starting from the beginning, if you have a spouse who comes to you and says, you know, I, I'm having questions or I no longer believe, what are the first steps of critical communication that is effective for the spouse during that faith transition? Well, you know, of course, there's challenges on both sides because the person who's, it's not always true. I've had clients where they basically use their disbelief to kind of taunt and psychologically abuse their spouse. So I've seen that extreme, okay? Mm -hmm. But in most cases, um, the person who feels disbelief or is starting to question their own um, positions feels that they know that they're going to inflict something on the marriage and on their partner. And so they often are holding this in their hearts for a long time or questioning how they can do this and how much intimacy the marriage can handle. They may have their own doubts about whether or not it's even legitimate how they feel because maybe it is about their own spiritual defectiveness that they're having these questions. But can the marriage tolerate them having them, right? So that's, I think, often what the husband's dealing with, or the husband, sorry, I, I've got it in my head that way, but the person who's going through the faith transition. Mm-hmm. The, the, the person who's on the receiving side of that, I mean, I think a very natural response is anger, fear, a desire to minimize it or to try and change the spouse to get them, you know, start reading scriptures to them, leaving out yeah. different, you know, church materials to remind them of things, you know, and, and I can certainly understand why, which is I want you to not threaten what we have. Um, and so that's a very, very typical response. I think when 
what the next typical stages, and I haven't studied this, so I, this is just my kind of come from my own clinical work, what I'm saying. I think then there's typically a stage of realizing that they aren't going to change back. More information comes forward uh, to sort of validate that fact. And then there's a stage of anger, distrust, rejection, and it's often going both ways because the person in the faith transition is angry that there's not more love for them. And the person that's not in the faith transition is angry that that their partner's inflicting this on them and they can't see the sense in it. They don't relate to the challenges and the ideas. They feel a sense of peace in their faith or at least enough peace that they want to stay in that position. And so there's mutual anger and still attempts at trying to change or get the other person back. And often what people do is then they go outside of the marriage and find allies for their respective positions. Right. And so they sort of break from the tension in there and they get other people that feel sorry for them in whichever position they're in. Right. Um, and then I think what I see in the work I do is that there's a kind of a question of whether or not you're going to choose the marriage. Are you going to deal with the marriage and choose the person in the ways that they're different from you? Or are you going to choose your respective loyalties? And I think that that's the big question. I think that the, the big question is, can marriages that go through a faith transition from a partner and are now a mixed faith relationship, can they survive? And they and certainly can, but it does require development on both parties' side. Right. They have to say that I want the intimacy of this partnership more than any specific vision or dream that reinforces my point of view. Right. And partnership matters more to me. And if they do want that, they find a way to build a way. They find a way to build a bridge across commonalities. The loyalty is not to the respective ideologies. The loyalty is to the partnership. Right. But finding an ideology that reinforces you, whether that's a, a believing one or whether that's a disbelieving one, because in either case, you can find a lot of reinforcement for your own perspective. And you don't have to actually love and stretch towards another person. So it's very tempting to get into the self-righteousness of your own position rather than how do I build a bridge to this person who thinks about reality differently than me? How can we find common positions um, that we can really hold together? And you may want to do it and have a partner who doesn't, right? Um, or, you know, some people may say, no, I want a marriage. I want a partnership, i.e. I want you to still do and think and believe like I do. <laughs> and I'm just going to browbeat you into that. Uh, but to say, no, I'm really willing to deal with your annoying perspective on life <laughs> and find something that I can stand behind with you. I think, I think there's a lot of room to do it because in my experience, most good people, whether or not they believe in the religious framing that they grew up with, believe in the core values that faith is supposed to help us create. So if the point of our faith is to help us become more loving, 
to uh, be good parents, to offer the highest virtues and values to our children and to embody them ourselves, well, then maybe it doesn't matter so much how you create that in your life, whether it's through reading literature or reading the scriptures or how you find the supports for high, uh, higher qualities. But if a partnership says this is what we stand for, well, then, then there's a lot more room to understand that we may come to that position from different orientations, different, different ways of reinforcing this in ourselves. You know, for example, in my uh, friends who are uh, in a mixed faith, you know, she's LDS and he's not uh, religious at all, but they really value these core values. Now, she loves the scriptures, and so they'll have a, have a lesson on um, – I'm just trying to think of something that I know about them. Well, you know, for example, just on compassion. So she, you know, he may talk about it from his own perspective, you know, examples in literature and so on about all the ideas in which, in which compassion is fundamental to society working well. And she'll talk about it by going to the New Testament, telling stories that demonstrate this. Um, she has a strong belief in God and Christ and how much that's, facilitated her sense of being loved and her ability to love. And she's unwavering or sort of unapologetic for her position, but he has no sense of that. He may see it more as a psychological reality, but he certainly doesn't interfere with her offering what's been real for her because he respects her respects her as a person, respects her experience and her perspectives. And so there's room for each other to offer their honest view without having to trample on the view of the other. Yeah. And I think you hit that word respect when I think about um, marriage in general, but when I think about somebody who is in a relationship where there are such big differences and points of view, the only way that that can survive is through respect. And, yes. and the interesting thing is when, when you're speaking about that, um, in my opinion, and just in the the experiences that I have seen in mixed faith relationships that are due to a faith transition, I see that one person really does panic and holds on to their faith and and sort of uh, doesn't know what to do. So all they do is what they know and they push their faith on them and yes. through through fear, like you mentioned. And yes. so what would you say um, boundaries that need to be set? It's a good question. I have to think about what, what the answer is. Sure. I mean, the issues around boundaries, I sometimes struggle with the language of boundaries because even though I teach it in my courses, uh, the idea of, um, I'm setting a boundary is often, confused with I'm trying to control you and your behavior rather than I'm defining what I'm willing to do or not do, how respectful I'm going to be, and to hold a position of expecting respect. So that's where it comes from rather than I'm putting a limit on you. Okay. Um, So, I mean, I think good boundary behavior is to say as painful as this is for me, as much as I want my spouse to be different, I have to be decent. I can define who I am. I can define what matters to me. 
I can even talk about the fact that it's painful for me that they don't see it the same way and be honest, but I, I can't go over and punish them for not reinforcing my worldview. Right. That's unbounded. That's disrespectful. That's indecent. So I will hold a boundary on myself. Now, if I think my spouse is dissing my view, is demeaning of my beliefs or positions, I mean, I can hold my self-respect and say, you know, I think it's unfair that you're doing that. And especially if you're respectful of their positions to say, I respect your positions. I expect the same. And if you can't, you know, if there's something specific that you find not respect worthy in what I'm doing or saying or believing, I'm open to understanding it because I don't want to be disrespectful of you. But I'm asking you to be respectful of the fact that I see things differently than you do, as hard as that may be for you. But if we're going to have a marriage, we're going to have to learn to tolerate holding our own views honestly and respectfully with one another, else we won't make it, (laughs) okay? We won't make it if you're going to trample me. I'm willing to have your honest challenges or your honest questions, but I'm not open for your disrespect, Right. So that's what it would sound like. But that's a self-defining position, not you're saying this is what I am willing to do with you. And if you aren't willing to respect that, that's going to be problematic for us or problematic for me being willing to stay in this. But that's more defining what you're willing to participate in with the other person. But it's based in self-respect and respect for the other. Right. And challenges your own tyranny and and narrowness as much as it's challenging your spouse's. Right. And what about to that spouse who feels like, okay, um, this is just a moment. This is just a, a season that my spouse is, is going through. And so I am going to be respectful and I'm going to say the right things, but in the back of their mind, their job, what they feel is their job to bring them back, to convince them mm-hmm. otherwise. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so that's just sort of pseudo-respect. It's not really respectful. It's, it's more um, pretending that basically what it is is if I'm nice enough, they'll come around. And I think that the anger in that and the lack of love in that will show itself soon enough. Because it's, it isn't loving to just look for reinforcement. You know, to love those that love you, that's easy, right? Like Christ was saying is that the real love is in loving people that don't validate you, that aren't giving you the view of yourself that you want or the view of reality that you want. Right. But in my experience, you know, Christ led the way on this, which is that you, you, you can find your own, you can understand who God is by walking towards humanity, towards what is real, what is honest, that I'm afraid if I love you, it will corrupt my faith. And I think that's a weak faith rather than loving and knowing this person will help me better understand who God is. Right. And, and I think that's, you know, it, that's partly why it takes a lot of courage to love. We are much more comfortable as human beings 
stereotyping people, dismissing people, putting them in categories that allow us to not have to deal with their their human experience and what it has to teach us. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, the LDS culture can be a little bit tough for us in mm-hmm. the sense that um, there's a lot of fear that gets instilled the second somebody has questions yes. or, or, you know, expresses a type of feeling. And, yes. and, and then to go even further, um, if a, if a spouse is thinking about leaving the religion, all of a sudden that is, well, what about our membership in the temple and, you know, doing those sacred things together? That's a huge loss. Oh yeah. It's a huge loss. And how, it is. Yeah. How do we get through that? The, the fact that it's not just, you know, the marriage, it's the, the whole culture of it. It's a very tight knit culture. Exactly. Well, and I think in what you're saying is wrapped up this idea of who is God and what does God expect from me? Because if I can't go to the temple with my husband now, am I not sort of fundamentally betraying what I'm supposed to be and who I'm supposed to become? Yeah. And so who is God in this? What does God want from me? And um, I think that's something that any person in that position has to really sort out honestly. Um, I remember when I was a freshman at BYU and my brother was going through a faith crisis. This was pre-internet, and but he was just found, had found books on church history and things that were really shaking his belief. And I remember that I was hanging out with him one evening and he was talking all about it to my horror. I mean, it was terrifying for me. And I wanted nothing more than for him to shut up (laughs) and go away. Um, And I remember driving back to my dorm that night and praying about it and saying that I was going to distance from my brother because I felt he was a threat to my faith. And I just remember thinking in that, that that was cowardly, that it was dishonest of me that my faith, that what was true could withstand loving and knowing my brother. And so it was just my instinct that I wanted to have something more courageous than that, even though it terrified me. So my prayer shifted more to helping me have courage and to see clearly, even in my effort to love and know my brother. Yeah. And and I think that's a tricky thing because that was my experience of who God was, that that mattered more than rigidity, orthodoxy. You know, I think when Christ said in the New Testament that um, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, what he's challenging is all of the notions of religion of, you know, that the Sadducees and the Pharisees are participating in all these outward appearances of religiousness and goodness but that it was hollow inside because there was judgment superiority you know um uh unwillingness to really love and so christ was saying no our religious um behaviors are there to support our ability to love not the other way around you know we don't they don't exist to in and of themselves they aren't the measure of goodness it's whether or not we use these things to create deeper capacity 
to love and be loved. And I think in our limited human minds, we very quickly turn those into markers and measures of who we are rather than using them to become stronger, wiser, higher integrity, more honest people. Right. We can use religion to be dishonest, actually, to mask who we are, to limit intimacy, to sort of not engage in life, or we can use it to facilitate our courage and our strength and our willingness. You know, I was in that moment going from using prayer as a way to justify myself to moving into using prayer as a way to have more courage, more faith, to be a better person. That's powerful. I had um, somebody come onto the podcast last week and she was talking about uh, a faith transition that her husband was going through. And she talked about um, the effects of people around her uh, who were members and just that narrative that we hear a lot, you know, um, how it really hurt her when people would say, oh, he's, the light in his eyes is gone. And, um, you know, what's going to happen with your children and your family if you guys can't be in the temple together? And, and just talking about, you know, all these fears that she's naturally thinking. And as a culture, um, they're just sort of dumping that on even more. And, And so that just got me thinking, um, what is our role as a supportive family member or friend uh, of of looking from the outside from this relationship that is going through a faith transition? Um, what are our boundaries and what is what is our job to support and uplift from mm-hmm. our points of view? Well, I think you know what the podcast um, participant was probably pointing to is that when, when we see, um, you know, I think we can have a lot more compassion for someone who's never, ever been a member than someone who's a member who's deciding not to be one, because that feels much more threatening. They know who we are and they reject us. Okay. That's much more like, oh my gosh, you know? So the idea of wanting to project judgment is a very instinctive response, which is personal. It feels personal. It it feels personal. It feels rejecting and it feels threatening because maybe, maybe there's something I don't want to see or deal with that they do see. And that's why they're leaving. So the desire to categorize and scapegoat is really high. You know, like it's true in like fam, any kind of systems, you know, family therapy, the person who's calling out the bad behavior of the parents or dysfunction in the family is often scapegoated and sort of categorized as the bad child because it hurts so much to self-confront and to look at where your limitations are. So it's a very instinctive and easy thing to do. It's also really easy to join with people in a shared victimhood. So, you know, if someone's saying my husband is not coming anymore or my wife's not coming anymore, whatever, and I'm just poor me, poor me, it's very easy to both use your fear of that and the shared covert superiority and create a collusion. So remember when I was talking about that phase where people then go and turn out towards other people, there's a real easy collusion there that we understand each other, you poor thing. And people can do it on both sides in the, you know, in the faith transition community and in the faithful community. Mm -hmm. And so 
it's dangerous because it reinforces you exactly where you are. You find an intimacy that's cheaper and that doesn't pressure you to deal with your marriage. I think the kindest thing you can do in any friend or family member who's having marital challenges is don't create that collusion in poor you. You want your input to facilitate them dealing with their marriage. Yes. Right. So it might sound like, I'm sure it's really hard. I, that would be hard for me. I can imagine it's really challenging. And, you know, and you figuring out with your spouse what you can really live with and deal with and create together is probably in your interest, meaning you're turning them back to the marriage because it is in their interest to deal with the tensions that are there and to say, I support you in that. That's hard, but I believe in your ability as a couple to figure this out. Right. So good families reinforce the unit of the partnership. They don't interfere with that unit because that's where all the growth happens. Yes. And uh, ironically, I don't think that we do that. We we find a bond in that misery or in that same feeling and we kind of separate that. Absolutely. It's a personal thing. Exactly. And, And this is some of the vulnerabilities of different groups like you know, SA, Sex Anonymous, Sex Addicts Anonymous, or like the uh, the equivalent of the the spouse that's been betrayed is that the, it's very easy to find reinforcement and intimacy within the respective groups. I don't think they are as good at pressuring the partnership to deal with the inherent vulnerabilities and limitations in that partnership so they can grow into something stronger. So it's very easy to do this as human beings, look for reinforcement and step away from the places we aren't reinforced so we actually get stronger. Right. How damaging is it to bring somebody into that? So I'm just thinking about um, the spouse who has just learned that their partner is going through a faith transition and these reinforcements that we're talking about, whether it's family, whether it's community, whether it's um, religious friends, how damaging is it to a relationship to sort of try to bring in those reinforcements to push your point of view? And and what does that do? I think it can be very damaging yeah. because that the you're ganging up on the spouse and nobody wants to be ganged up. On, and I've seen it go the other way where the person who's less believing gets their cohorts of non-believers and is pressuring the believing spouse, right? So nobody wants to be ganged up on. It's not fair. And it, it expresses your loyalty is to your groupies, not to this marriage. And can we have an honest struggle around these differences? So I think it feels good. It helps us, but it, it, it actually not only infects the partnership, but it interferes with your ability to really figure out where you stand rather than just falling into the reinforcement of a group. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons why people do that is because um, they fear, obviously, but they they feel alone. And that yes. also brings me to um, the thought that I think a lot of the majority of people who are going through this, they want to keep it private. So we have a lot they, of marriages that are silently yeah. suffering. That's right. 
And what would what would you say that next step is for those couples that are sitting in this silently and whether it's one or whatever, they don't want to 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 tell somebody else a secret or they don't feel like it's their place. What's the next mm-hmm. step? Well, I would say that uh, as alone as it is, it's a real opportunity for your growth at least. And we seldom feel, we seldom enjoy and like these moments of deep challenge to who we are, but it's really where our strength comes. So I would say that the truth sets you free. And it's an opportunity to have a deeper understanding of who God is, what love is, who you are, what you believe, and to create something more robust and more honest by allowing it to be challenged through the tensions that are in your marriage. Yeah. And so as hard as it is, I mean, this is what every strong couple basically goes through is this choice that I'm willing to sacrifice my own self-view, my own comforts on the altar of partnership. So that's what good partnerships ultimately do. So it might mean I feel terribly lonely. I, I feel angry at you for not reinforcing my view. I feel like I have to protect who I am from you, whatever it is. And yet, because you matter to me, I want to understand you better. And so tell me, why does this make sense to you? Or why does this not make sense to you? Or how do you put this together? And how do you make sense of this? And it's not in the design of trying to get, you know, to, as, a, as like an interrogation or a challenge to say, think like I do. But honestly, how do you make sense of it? And can I seek to understand, then be understood? Yes. Very hard to do as human beings. We, we seek to understand just so we have a, a, an inroad to be understood. You know, that's what we very quickly do. And if you really calm yourself down enough to seek to understand, that's a great act of faith. That is to say, I believe in what is true to be more important than what, than what reinforces me right now. Right. And, you know, I think, I think, you know, I, growing up in the church, one of the things that we often taught was, you know, do what is right, let the consequence follow. That was one idea. But also just this idea that the truth sets you free and God represents the truth. And so I think for me, that was a very important idea that, that leaning towards what was true would bring you closer to the divine would help your life, even if it terrified and troubled you at first. And so I think otherwise we collude in a dishonest way of living that on one level gives us comfort, but on another level makes us anxious because we know we're always running from what's right in front of us. Right. And you can't be at peace when you do that. You pay a big, big price for cowardice. Yeah. Oh, that is good. Do you think that there is a point where or signs that say maybe this marriage is not healthier together? And if so, what are those signs? I mean, if you just can't, if you don't want to build a bridge enough, 
well, that's a sign. I mean, a lot of people stay together and kind of hate each other till their last child leaves and, and tell themselves they did something noble. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people do that. I, I don't know that there's any nobility in it. Yeah. I mean, it, is it, but do I want to partner with this person, even though he or she drives me crazy in these other ways? Do I want to still see if we can build something honest and that that person is willing to do that too? And, and I think, well, then you can do it. You could find a way. I've worked with lots of couples that find a way, even though they relate to faith differently. Um, and you can model to your children that mom has a different view than dad but they both respect and love each other. They both stand up for good principles and ideas. They come by it differently, each of them, but they love us. And I think that's a tremendous gift to yeah. give to a child. It allows them to step into the complexity of human thought and meaning making and gives them a lot of re important, honest reference points in sorting out who they are. Yeah. Uh, so there's real value in it. But if you're, partnered if you're unwilling to do it good luck finding somebody else to be happy with <laughs> okay and if your spouse is unwilling to do it but you really are willing to deal with your half but your spouse just isn't well then you maybe have to decide if it's worth the cost but see i think there's always a decision on how honest you're going to be in the marriage and i think and how open you are to the honesty of the other person and i think if you are willing to be honest and open to who they are, it will, you will know, you'll know if there's any room to create a marriage. A lot of people resentfully tuck their truth away and the resentment kills it. That's really what it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's I think, that courage. yeah. And I think that there's a lot of um, people who say I'm willing to make it work and I want to make it work, but the actions don't fall along and align yeah. with that. Exactly. And being aware of exactly saying all the right things, but not yes. getting that. That's right. They're saying I'm willing to work on it, but really they're coddling their victimhood. They're coddling their, their the self-righteousness of their view. They're not really saying, look, I want to make room for two of us, even though I hate your, you and your ideas. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of joking, but, but yeah. you know, it's hard when you don't like what your spouse thinks and to say, no, I'm really willing to create something shared. All that takes some real courage and willingness to be collaborative, to be humble and say, I'm willing to be uncomfortable to create a home for two of us. That, that takes courage. That takes guts. And I think believing that God wants that from us helps. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a very interesting topic as far as interfaith relationships because we've all you know no matter what somebody believes in a marriage it takes work and so the idea of it would be easier with somebody else i mean mm -hmm. as long as you have two willing participants like you said you can make a marriage work yes but it's very interesting because when you do get to a crossroads where one heavily believes in something different and it's not something that you signed up for there is this space of, oh, would it be so much easier with somebody else? And what do you yeah. say to that? Well, I think it could be. I mean, it depends a little bit on what is driving the sense of it would be so much easier. If it's that you have a flagrantly self-righteous spouse who doesn't want to deal at all with your beliefs, um, yeah. well, then it might be easier because 
you're saying this person just will not make room for me. Um, if it's that, look, I just believe like I believe, I don't want it to be challenged. I want to go find somebody else who reinforces me. Okay, well, you you can do that. And you may well be able to find somebody who reinforces you. But what it is also exposing is how limited of an ability you have to really, if you have a collaborative partner and you're saying no to that, you just want reinforcement. Well, you may find reinforcement, but it really limits how honest of a marriage you're able to create and how intimate of a marriage you can create. Yes. So reinforcement's intoxicating, but it really limits honesty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good. Mm-hmm. You mentioned children. Um, when do you think it is appropriate or the right time to bring the children up to speed or let them in on the transition that the family is going through? I mean, ideally, it's, it's if the couple can come up with a collaborative position that they can offer it more honestly. So it may be, um, let's say the wife is the one who's gone through the faith challenge, that it might be that they are sitting down with their kids and saying, you know, um, mom sees things differently, or I, mom, see things differently. I don't see it this way anymore. I see it this way. But dad, whom I love and respect, does see it this way. And here it is. And so we do approach these things differently. Uh, but this is what we still stand for. We still, this is a, the ideal version. We still love each other. We still respect each other. That while mom will have maybe different points of view, we both stand for these ideals and these um, objectives. You know, mom is still planning to, you know, I don't know, go to church or have family home evenings or whatever it is, right? So you're sort of offering, here's where it is. But the, the more important idea is that mom and dad are okay. And that while it's a little scary for us, mom seems to still be mom and she is holding a respect for what the family has been about up until now and also holding on to her own points of view. And so when issues come up in the family, like where if a child asks, so, you know, um, dad, do you believe in God, you know, or whatever, something like that, then dad might answer from his point of view and say, but mom, who's also very wise and very good person sees it differently. Right. And if you think you can give a fair representation, you can say what it is. Or you can say you can ask mom about her perspective on it because she does approach it differently. That's good. That, that is a really good narrative to set because I, I think even something, the way you said it makes it so simple, but a lot of us don't know how to go about that. Right. Well, a lot of us want a way more control than life offers us. And so we want to control our kids to reinforce our narrative. We want our spouse to reinforce it. And, you know, that's natural man, that's human nature, but it's not loving and kind because the kindest thing you can do often is get out of people's way and let them be true to their own, to their own best selves. And even if it doesn't reinforce you. Right. You're saying a lot of really great things here. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, they're easier to say than to do. <laughs> you know, it's hard to love. It's hard to have that kind of courage. It's hard to center yourself when, you know, other people have their agency and and they don't necessarily reinforce you, right? Yeah. So it's it's not easy stuff. So it's simple but difficult, but it's where all the beauty is. It's where all the peace comes. It's where you really get to know who God is, what the divine is, what our higher selves are. Absolutely. Um, when we, when we talk about deal breakers, I don't even know what you think about that, but, um, things such as alcohol or, um, I know, I no longer will be attending church with you. You know, the, big things that we need to adjust. What are your opinions on that? Well, I think they're legitimate questions for the person to take up, which is, you know, um, can I really make room for this and, and not resent and hate the other person Mm -hmm. to not feel like I've self betrayed. On the other hand, am I really ready to give this up if I feel like I can't? Right. And, you know, I was working with somebody um, in one of the workshops I did in Canada, actually, she was just saying something like that. She really was confronting how unfair her position had been. Her husband went through a faith transition, wanted to drink alcohol sometimes, like responsibly, but she would make him drink it in the garage. And she felt justified in that because you're the one polluting the family. You're the one who's infected, you know, our faith. And so don't you dare put it in the fridge. You know, like, and and that's the position she took. And he went along with it, it sounds like, because maybe he felt guilty about it or he did know that this had been a big loss for her. But, you know, following the workshop, she said she went home and said, I haven't been fair. And I just want you to know that you can have it in the fridge. Right. And like, that, that, that's okay with me and that I don't want to psychologically relegate you to the garage anymore. It's not kind. It's not good. And what she said on day two, when she was telling the story was just that he just said, thank you that, you know, he hugged her for it. He saw the kindness in it. And he said, I'll keep it in the garage. Meaning I was, I thank you for your respect for me, but I also know that it's high meaning for you. And, you know, I don't mind, you know, drinking it back behind the shed. I'm just kidding. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. They came to a common ground. They both felt heard and respected, but they all took each other into consideration and then created a boundary that worked for both of them. That's right. That's right. And and they're both respect-based. And so that's, those are the marriages that make it, you know, it becomes the, the, the beer in the garage now is not about I'm disrespected. It's about there's respect in this marriage. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you say to, it's very easy and, and I think that there might be truth to it in the sense that the spouse that is blindsided, who isn't going through the faith transition, they are victims, um, of something, but also the fact that the spouse who is going through the faith transition, they are feeling a major sense of loss and yes. a sense of identity crisis. Um, and victimhood too, often victimhood. because they feel lied to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do we navigate that? The fact that both are victims. Yes. So on the one hand, I'm going to sound kind of insensitive, which is like, on the one hand, yes. Like it's legitimate, the sense of loss. 
on both sides, the sense of betrayal on both sides. It's, it's, it's the disorientation of it, the disorganization of it. But maybe the part that sounds a little flippant is that I don't, you, you can't live life without being disoriented, betrayed by your expectations that you think things will go in a particular way to like, it's a normal part of just taking the risk of living life. And I don't mean to say that doesn't mean it hurts any less or that it isn't really uncomfortable and challenging, but it's so fundamental to what life asks of us. And I think sometimes we create fantasies in our minds of how life is supposed to go, that it's supposed to look something like a Disney film or, I mean, I don't know if that's the right metaphor or not, but just like some like easy breezy, you know, you take me to the temple, all these things go together. Well, we have things. It's always happy, but I mean, have you really paid attention? Like that's not (laughs) how most people are living. I mean, they really are not that suffering is kind of fundamental to life. And the people that thrive find a deep resource to deal with the difficulty with some equanimity, but it's not the absence of the difficulty. And, you know, how many of us try to deal with our difficulty is through victimhood, through resentful victimhood, through a kind of superior hostility that you inflicted suffering on me, rather than it's fundamental to life to be disappointed. The gaps in marriage are fundamental to marriage, rather than this is a marker of something going wrong. No, it's just part of partnering. And so how are we relating to and dealing with these stretch points, these stressors? I'm So I, on the one hand, I do have empathy for the suffering because it's hard, you know. It's hard to deal with the ways that life can hollow us out in moments and, and really push us up against ourselves. And yet that's where people's strength comes from if they will let it. If you just sit around resenting it and cursing God, um, well, then you really limit its ability to develop you into somebody more compassionate, wiser, more solid, more able to be a resource for others. But if you let it teach you about reality, teach you about how to create goodness in the face of challenging difficulties, well, you'll come out better for it. So... That's what I think the point of the gospel is. The point of a meaningful faith is, is to give us the resources to handle the brutality of living. Yeah. And to make it better. And to make the world better, to be God's hands, to create better in the face of evil or the face of suffering. And we're not promised any fantasy of, of, you know, the garden of Eden. We're here in the trenches, and that's why faith is a virtue, is it takes some courage to still believe in the reality of the good in the face of so much that isn't good. Yeah. Okay, that's mind-blowing, and I need you to sum this up again because I think that our listeners need to hear that. The fact that you are saying, you know, we can all make ourselves victim in our own right, but the Mm -hmm. fact is in life, things change it's never going to go the way that we expect it to. So we need to find the beauty in that. And we yes. need to, instead of be the victim, just take it for what it is and roll with it and be our yeah. best self and be loving. Right. Sum up what you said, because that was powerful. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I will try and sum it up. I think that one, there is a tyranny in the expectation that everybody be happy. Mm-hmm. I think a better starting place is life, you know, as Scott Peck started his book, The Road Less Traveled, his very first sentence is life is difficult. Or from, you know, a Buddhist perspective is life is suffering. There's profound truth in that. And if you start from that position, well, it opens you up to gratitude and beauty paradoxically, rather than the entitlement of why am I not happy? Why aren't you making me happy, you loser? You know, yeah. It sets you up in a place of contempt if you expect that I should be here. And even when things are good, you don't see them because it's just as they're supposed to be, quote unquote, rather than gratitude is a virtue because it's an acknowledgement that I'm not owed, that the good things I have in my life are a deep blessing, right? That, you know, you uh, don't appreciate the ability to go to the gym as much as when you now can't go (laughs) or the beauty salon for that matter. Or, you know, I desperately need a haircut and, you know, no, I don't get my So, you know, I bet I'll value it at a different level when I go back. And so sometimes the reminder that there is so much good, we can get very focused on what isn't going the way we want, rather than how much we have to be grateful for, all of us. Yes. Uh, Because life, you know, you look historically, look at other people, suffering's the fundamental reality. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, I think that that might be a really good place to end because what else is better than that? Just yeah. knowing that um, that there is hope, just knowing yeah. that that we have the power to get through these things if we do it in Christ-like attributes of love and kindness and understanding yes. and respect. Yes. And, I think that, that is our path. That is the anchor. Absolutely. Yeah. Is. Whether we are married, whether we are single, whether we are going this path alone, I think that that is, why is that so easy to remember, but so easy to forget? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because it's so hard to do. Yeah. Because it's so uncomfortable to reach towards love and to reach towards gratitude. The, you know, the natural man impulse is the entitlement, the anger, just easy yeah and so we're working against a kind of miserable comfort but that's why we have things like prayer sabbath you know sacrament these are all pauses that allow us to reorient and to kind of find our courage and step in the directions that stretch us yeah yeah so my last question to you would be if if somebody is listening and they are in the depth of their own faith crisis or their marriage is being divided, what would your parting words be? Well, my parting words would be to have courage because in my honest experience, both in my own life and working with people is that God and goodness is real. And you don't even have to believe in an embodied God. Even just the fact that goodness and love are real forces. And that you may not see how you can build a bridge across all these differences, or you don't know how this is going to happen. 
but you can at least lean towards the anchor of your own courage to create something good in the face of what is. That will be more uh, steadying for you than any cleaving to reinforcement from other people or cleaving to reinforcement of your own you know, particular point of view, trying to reach towards something more courageous and more honest will ultimately steady you. And, you know, I'm grateful for all of those challenges to my belief that I have walked through because they've made me a more honest, solid, wiser person. I used to hate those things. I look back on them now and I'm eternally grateful for them because it's refined who I am and prepared me to handle suffering better. (laughs) Actually. Oh, I love that. I'm so Mm -hmm. grateful to have you on here. I'm going to somehow talk you into coming back again. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Yes. I know that our listeners will love this. This has been such a, a profound episode and I know a very deep and sensitive topic, but you have helped yeah. many today. So thank you. Thank you. Well, probably you could have me back on before I come to Canada again, because I was going to be there like actually right now this weekend, yeah. I was supposed to be there, but it will probably, well, we'll see what happens with the coronavirus, but maybe I'll be back in September or something whenever it's safe enough. Perfect. So, so maybe we can meet before again, you know, just as a way of helping people know I'm coming. So That's yeah. Good. Okay. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in our show notes below to learn more about where you can find Dr. Finlayson Fife's website, her online courses, information about her upcoming events, information about her free Facebook group, and more. Thank you for being here.